Well, good morning. Hey, I like that. I like that. Good response there. Well, I'm so glad that you are here. My name is Doug. I'm one of the pastors on staff, uh, and in particular, I work with the youth, both middle school and high school. So it is exciting to be able to be up here this morning with you all. Um, and in particular, what's really cool, so oftentimes we will save the actual birth of Christ in the scriptures for Christmas or Christmas Eve. I get it today, which is really fun for me. So I like that. I like that. Um, I do want to welcome everybody who is online as well, and I know that uh, Jamie is on there hosting, so hello to you all and hello to Jamie. Um, so this morning, we're going to be looking in Matthew in chapter 1 still, and if you remember last week, we talked about uh, the genealogy of Jesus and how that was very important and, and what that all meant, and now we lead all the way up to this moment. We're going to be looking in verse 18. That's where we're going to begin our passage, um, and we're going to be looking at the actual birth of Christ. But around that, there's a whole lot more going on as well. In fact, if you know your Bible very well, then you know that Luke 2 is where you go if you want all the nitty-gritty details of, of that moment, that day of Jesus' birth in particular. Matthew doesn't cover that. He covers all the lead up to it, and it's like, and Jesus was born, and then everything afterwards. And, and it's very quick. And that's what we're really focusing on is that lead up to the birth of Christ. Um, I want to share a little story with you. So back in 2011, I, ha- I was about three years into, uh, into my marriage with my wife. We're over in Virginia. I had just completed um, my degree in ministry, in worship ministry. Uh, I had gotten a job at the, the church that I interned at, and it was in a town about an hour away from where my wife was working, but she found out she was pregnant, and so she ended up deciding, okay, well, I'm going to quit that job and get another job in the town where I was working, which was they were about an hour difference. She does that, but again, with the intention that, hey, you know what? I'm going to have the baby. This job is going to end eventually as well as soon as the, the baby comes. Um, and in my job, I was working as a youth pastor's associate, which if you listen to that very carefully, is not an associate youth pastor. It's a little bit different. It's sort of like a, an assistant to the manager type of a position. But I still had a lot of the, the same responsibilities as you would as a youth pastor. I was working under a great guy who taught me a whole lot. He was the youth pastor. I had taken on all of the, the middle school ministry. Uh, I was kind of increasing in my scope as far as what I was doing. Every indication was that this was going to be a long-term situation, um, that I would be given a full-time job because I was working only a part-time job at the time. Um, and again, we had moved everything over. We were living in somebody's basement. All of our things were in somebody else's basement. And we were working it out, but it looked like it was all going in the right direction. And then in March, the same exact day that the earthquake that happened over in Japan the, that caused all the Fukushima disaster, that same day, uh, the, my boss sat me down and said, the church has decided to let you go. And that was a lot I will tell you, there were, there were two earthquakes that day, okay? My, my world got rocked that day. It was huge. And so what do you do? What do you do when, when there's this, this immense buildup, things are going really well, and then all of a sudden, the bottom just kind of drops out over and over and over again, because now I'm without a job. My wife is only going to have her job for so much longer. There's a baby on the way. We are 2,600 miles away from the closest family. What do you do? We're going to look at Joseph. I, I'm sure many of you have experienced circumstances that were similar in intensity and scope as far as there's a lot that just kind of builds up all of a sudden. And how do you handle it? How do you deal with it? We see that with Joseph today. And we're going to be reading again in Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. And we're going to go through the end of the chapter. So if you would, 
Would you stand with me as we read this and we discover how does, how does Joseph handle it? What does he do? There's a lot going on here. So starting in verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. You may be seated. So lots happening. For Joseph, there's a lot of emotion, certainly, that, that would have happened both before, I'm sure, during and after the angel gives him all this information. Now, there's a lot of pieces in here, though, that, that we need to break down just a little bit first before we really get into the story, because if you're anything like me, the first few times I ever read this passage, certain parts were really confusing. It says that Joseph was pledged to be married, and then it says that he was married, and then it says also that he was planning on getting a divorce. How is he planning on getting a divorce if he's what seems to me to be engaged? I mean, at that point, you just kind of like, hey, it's not working out. Can I have a ring back? Like, that should be all that it takes. But no, he's, he's somehow getting divorced. What is, what is this? So we're going to talk just a little bit. We're going to talk about first century Jewish marriage. I hope you're ready for this. This is going to be kind of fun, actually. There's, there's a lot to it. And in particular, I will tell you, when you think of this, I need you to think of tradition, okay? Tradition is huge. And if you've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof, I, which hopefully you have, it's a wonderful movie, um, you know that tradition is what guides a lot of what the Jewish people do. It, it encompasses everything. And also, we need to know that the scripture is a lot of what it's based on, but they also have their other traditions and their other uh, different pieces that inform them how they're supposed to do things, not just what they're supposed to do. And so, as we look at that this morning, I want to talk a little bit about how this marriage process would work, because it's not quite the same as the way that I'm sure you, or definitely not the way that I got married, and how that whole worked with me. It's, you know, you get engaged, you find the girl that you want, uh, you, you kind of talk with her, you get to know her a little bit, you know, and you could, you could imagine first century, uh, Joseph probably didn't have the same opportunities, the same situations as we do, you know, he's not, he's not looking through, you know, Jewish e-harmony or whatever, you know, and then, oh, I'll take her out to, you know, to the local cafe, I don't know, what cafe, fish place, whatever. You have a few meals, you know, you get to know her, you go meet her parents or family, you know, yeah, you, eventually you ask the, the dad, hey, I would like to marry your daughter. And well, you know what? Yeah, it looks like you, you, know, you believe the right things and you, you know, you've got a stable job. Yeah, you know what? You can have my, my daughter's hand in marriage. And you go and you set up the perfect spot and the, the, you know, the top of the hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee and you kneel down and you, know, you pull out that ring. No, this didn't happen. This was not what happened. In fact, there is a good chance, a very good chance, that Mary and Joseph never even met before this time period right here. Because in first century Jewish marriage, and even in sometimes nowadays, uh, in certain cultures, they would have what are called arranged marriages. And an arranged marriage, here's how it works. 
you have a representative from each family, the groom's family over here and the bride's family over here. And that representative would always be some male representative of the family, a patriarch of some sort. Why? And this is very important, not because it was like, oh, they only care about the guys or whatever else. It's really not what it was. It was because the core unit of society was the family, not the individual. It was the family. And within a family, if you can think about it that way, the family is going to be this, you can only have one legal representative within the core unit. Otherwise, it's like going to the, to the uh, voting booth and being able to have two votes. You have one vote for each family, and who does that? Well, it would be the husband, because he's in the marketplace, he's doing his job, he's doing all these, this work, and so he has to have legal representation within the society, and so he's the one who does that. Now, with that, you have a representative. So it wouldn't actually even be the groom oftentimes. It would be uh, a relative of the groom and a relative of the bride, oftentimes the father of the bride. This actually happened, and I know that it was on the screen here, and you can show this, that, that picture back up again. Um, this is my cousin Aaron, okay? And he was like my best friend growing up, uh, and his wife Dama and their three kids. He is a missionary in Africa, and he was a part of, it technically wasn't an arranged marriage, but he went through a lot of this. See, what happened was he let us know, and this was very interesting when we all got the emails. So he's over in Kenya, Africa, and he lets us know he needs a representative from our family. And he ended up choosing my uncle, who was a colonel in the military, so maybe because he had good negotiating skills or something like that, to represent him in negotiations with the representative of his bride-to-be. Uh, and they had to negotiate. And what, did they, what were they negotiating? They were negotiating a dowry as well as, you know, is this the right person? And are they, do they work together? Is this going to be, can you actually support my daughter? Those sorts of things. Well, I, re- I think, if I remember correctly, and I could be wrong, but I know I'm, I'm pretty close, the, the dowry, which, by the way, was paid, is paid by the husband's family to the bride's family. And know that this, is not a, this isn't some form of slavery. This is, the idea, again, is the core unit is the family. And when you lose a family member, there is a lack in the family now, right? That family member would be expected to contribute in major ways. And so the success of the family was dependent upon that person. And so here is a compensation to help with the family in now that they are lacking another family member. Now, the dowry for, for my cousin, I believe he paid a computer. I think it was a couple goats. It was some sort of livestock and some money. And when he paid these things, now the, the marriage is official. It's begun. Now, for them, it still wasn't until the actual ceremony that they were considered legally married. But in Jewish law, as soon as that money or whatever, the goods, exchanged hands, the marriage had begun. It was started. The only way to end that marriage at that point in time, even though the, the bride and groom still may have never even met, the only way to break that off is with a divorce because it is legally binding. This agreement has occurred. And so that's why we see in the passage here that Joseph is talking about when considering, okay, how do, I, how do I resolve this? Divorce is the only way to create any separation here. You can't just walk away. And I will tell you as well that Joseph was actually very kind in doing this as well. And we'll look at that uh, here in just a little bit. So this has all happened. Remember that the angel came to Mary before she was even showing as well. She didn't even know she was pregnant. In fact, it, there's pretty good indication that she wasn't pregnant yet when Gabriel first came to meet her and let her know, hey, this is going to happen. Okay, so this is at the very beginning. Mary is still living at home. She may never have even met Joseph at this point. There's a good chance Joseph may not have met. And by the way, here's the crazy part, in case you haven't heard this before. 
Do you know what the legal marrying age at that time was? It's 12, yeah. I heard somebody say, I heard a 15 out there. That's close, but 12, 12 years old. I have an 11-year-old daughter. <laughs> so if you want to start negotiations, we can talk. No, I'm just, I would never do that. I can't imagine. I cannot imagine. Oh, goodness sakes. But the reasoning, again, going back to the, the family is the core unit. Well, that's super important because if she is able physically capable of having children, then she is physically capable of being a part of a family, of starting her own family. And that means that she needs to be able to have a husband because that is a complete family. That's the expectation. Now, oftentimes they would be married off to an older man. You know, he, at least he would be established in society as far as having a job, having some sort of income. That's why, because you don't send your girl off, you don't send your beautiful daughter off with a 12-year-old boy. I know a lot of 12-year-old boys. I work with them every week. I don't trust them, okay? They're great. They're not ready. And so that's why you see that. And so you hear that, yeah, Joseph probably was a fair amount older than Mary. That's probably why you don't see him in the scriptures a lot later on in Jesus' life, because he was probably older. And you realize here as well that he was truly a righteous man. He was a good husband, okay? So as we look into this, we're going to break this down piece by piece. Now you understand how the marriage situation works. Now you, it'll make a lot more sense as we go through each of these pieces. So first off, I want to start with what is the bad news? Bad news. The bad news is Mary's pregnant. Now a pregnancy generally is very good news, but remember, while they are considered married legally, they have not yet come together. It says they had no union, we, all of us adults know what that means, okay? That means that there's no way that this is Joseph's child. In fact, they, again, they may not have even met yet. So this is a bad situation. We all know in our society right now, while it's not, it's not as taboo as it once was, a, a birth out of wedlock still does bring shame. There is a certain amount of that, that stigma to it that you didn't do it the right way. And certainly we know from Scripture that God did intend that children be born within a family. That's the expectation. It doesn't always happen that way, but that is the expectation. And so there's a certain amount of shame to that. Definitely for Mary, there was a lot of shame. We're going to look at this uh, verse 18 right here, and here's what it says. It says, before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now, Mary knew that it was through the Holy Spirit. Gabriel had told her, but do we know whether Joseph knew this or not? At this point in time, he may not have, because again, she has to be speaking through a representative. So she can't just go over and just knock on Joseph's door and be like, hey, so I got some news for you. No, she has to speak through a representative of her family. She actually, it would be a, kind of a little illicit for her to go and actually spend a lot of time with Joseph before they're married. So her meeting up with him would be pretty taboo in and of itself. So she has to send a representative saying possibly the worst news for her at the pot, that time. I'm pregnant, and obviously it's not yours. Oh, that's hard news to hear. Now, again, Mary's still living at home, and her family probably would have wanted to try to keep this as quiet as possible. And you, here's why. Because not only the shame, but there's a lot that can happen to Mary because of this. In fact, the law would allow for even if, if you were found to be adulterous, and that's the only situation that this could be, in, at least in everybody's mind at that time, because by the way, guess how many virgin births had happened up to this point? Exactly zero. This was not a thing that happened. It still isn't, okay? It's not, it's not a good excuse, all right? Mary's the only one. 
And so she has no excuse. To everybody, this looks like adultery. And the punishment is death by stoning. Now, that's only if Joseph seeks that. He doesn't have to. And we see in the passage that he actually doesn't. And so what do we see? We see that Joseph does the honorable thing. What does he do? Verse 19, we go right here. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. And like I said before, this is to Mary's benefit, actually. You need to realize that this was not so that Joseph could just be done with her, but rather because in doing so, he's released her from any legal obligation to him. He's trying to protect her. He is a righteous man. Uh, He doesn't seek to shame Mary. And we see that in the verse down here. He did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He didn't want to throw her in front of the court of public opinion where some people are going to just start saying, she deserves to die. The law says it. I say it. We all are in agreement. Let's do it. No, Joseph wants to protect her. And we see that as a theme with Joseph and Mary continually. We'll see it even more next week of how Joseph over and over and over cares for Mary greatly. And again, this is for a woman that he may not have even met. But he cares. Why does he care? He cares, one, because this was his bride-to-be, but also because he is a righteous man. He is a good man. No wonder God chose him. Now, we had the bad news. Here's the good news. The good news is, hey, guess what? Mary wasn't unfaithful. She wasn't. And we know that, of course, but they didn't at that time. Not unless Mary told them. And even if she told them, that might have seemed like a big excuse she was trying to put on. But Mary wasn't unfaithful. And we see that in our scriptures. We see that Gabriel specifically comes. And by the way, here's something really important to mention too. Mary's word by herself would not be enough. It really wouldn't. Jewish law, it's in scripture, says in order to bring, whether it's an accusation or a defense, you have to have two or three witnesses in order to back that up. So Mary by herself is not enough. And God knows that. So he sends Gabriel as also to Joseph. He sends him to Joseph. And then what, what do we see in verses 21 through 23? He says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now we have two people in agreement. The two most important people, obviously, as well. And so God has set this up perfectly. Now, as we look at this, this is very, very interesting, the way that God set it up. Because it might seem messy, and in some ways it is. But at the same time, it's exactly the way that it needed to be. Jesus being both God and man, and being able to fulfill that which is of God and that which is of man. So now we understand that if Jesus was not God, okay, if he was not born of the Holy Spirit, then that means that he has no real power. That means he has a sin nature and he cannot fight against it any more than any of us can. Oh, I know we try, but how many of us have actually been successful in fully defeating sin? I don't think so. No, that takes the power of God. Not only that, but we also see that without that deity, Jesus would have no power to be raised from the dead. Yes, others have raised others from the dead, but to rise from the dead himself without intervention from somebody else? No, not possible. That means that there is no salvation if Jesus is not deity, if the Holy Spirit is not involved in this conception, which is why Joseph cannot be a part of that. And also, Likewise, 
you have to look at if Jesus wasn't a man. If Jesus wasn't a man, if he was not born of Mary, of human flesh, then that means that Jesus cannot be our salvation either. Think about it this way. You can't have a sacrifice without that sacrifice being equal to what you are sacrificing for. Now, I know that, yes, they sacrificed sheep and the, the lamb, right, which was eventually a representation of Jesus. But you have to realize as well, if you look in the scripture, that lamb was never enough. The sheep itself was never enough to sacrifice and wash away all the sins of the people for good. It was a representation of what Jesus was going to do. It would be like this. Think about it. If you had somebody come in and they murder one of your family members, and then the judge comes in and says, yep, this guy is guilty, judgment against him, so we're going to go kill his dog. His dog is going to be put to death because, no, that doesn't work, does it? You cannot have that. No, you have to have the same for the same. In order for Jesus to be a sacrifice for mankind, he has to be mankind. That's the only way. And then Jesus also couldn't fulfill all the different prophecies. By the way, prophecies that God himself had set up. So, of course, he's going to be able to fulfill them. But all the different prophecies, along with the recognition that Jesus was supposed to be man. We look in about lots of different prophecies of how he had flesh and how he had bones. Even communion itself, think about that. This is the bread which is my body broken for you. I mean, not really, because it's not, I'm not really human, so, I mean, just imagine it or something. And then here's the cup, which represents my blood, which I don't really have, but, you know, make believe. No, that doesn't work. Jesus must be human. He has to be. And then finally, in order for him to fulfill all the covenants, and we looked at all the lineage last week, all these different people that the Savior must come through, in particular, Adam. There's the covenant with Adam all the way back at the very beginning of creation. Adam and Eve sin, and right there amongst all the curses is a blessing. It says that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. What is that talking about? It's talking about that which the one who would come from the woman, and by the way, there's a whole lot in there as well, really interesting stuff, that that's even a reference to the virgin birth. But the seed of the woman, in other words, has to come from a woman, as all humans do would crush the head of the serpent, who's the serpent we see represented in Revelation, pointing back to Genesis, that old serpent, the devil. That's super important. And then you look at Abraham. Through you, all nations will be blessed. Well, through Abraham, how's Jesus coming through Abraham if he's not even human? Abraham was certainly human. This doesn't make sense all of a sudden if Jesus is not human. Along with that, you look at the Davidic covenant. How is the king of Israel supposed to take the throne if he's not actually from the line of David? Because that's the line that God said will last forever. If Jesus is not man, he cannot fulfill all of those requirements. And if he's not God, he's not capable of doing all of those things. So we see that God has lined this up perfectly. Now, great news for us, Jesus is those things. God is with us. He is one of us. He is human, and yet he still remains as God. 100% of both. And you say, well, that's bad math. Not for God, okay? For you and me, we are limited. We are limited in scope and capability. God is not. He can be that. He can be both fully God and fully man. God incarnate. And we look in verses 21 through 23, and we see all of this. We're going to read through it one more time. She will give birth to a son. Again, there's the human nature right there. And you are to give him the name Jesus. Now, remember, this is speaking to Joseph. Pay attention to that. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's 
Again, God is the only one who can truly do that. Then moving on to the next verse here. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Again, a fulfillment of scripture right here. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is what Jesus has done. He has taken all of the parts and brought them together in this one single moment of Jesus being born, the God-man himself. So what does this mean for us? We see that Jesus then is, first off, we see that he's the son of man. That's the obvious part to everybody at that time. He's the son of man, legally through Joseph, but then also physically through Mary. Now this is very, very important, again, going back to the line of David. Now remember that, that passage we looked at, Joseph named Jesus. This is a very big deal because that means he is legally claiming Jesus as his son. He's saying, yeah, that's my kid. If you remember uh, in Luke chapter one, where you have the whole situation with Zechariah and with Elizabeth, and they're going to have a kid, and Zechariah is made mute, and he's supposed to get, they're trying to figure out, what are we going to name this kid? And so they keep going back to Zechariah, but he can't speak. And this is a very, very challenging situation because it's like, this is the guy who's supposed to name him. He's your kid, right? If he's your kid, this is your, your job to name him. And what's his name? What's his name? And they're like, whatever. He can't speak. We're just going to name him Zechariah. And finally, he blurts out, his name's John. His name's John. His name's John. We're good. Okay. My kid. His name's John. Same thing basically is happening here, but nobody's mute. Joseph is telling everybody, this is my kid. Legally, this is my kid because I have named him. We also see on the other side of it, oh, and that's in the scripture here. I've got it right up here. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save, their, he will save their, his people from their sins. And the name Jesus means the Lord saves. Pretty straightforward. Now we see on the other side of it, Jesus is not just the son of man. He is the son of God. And so what do we see? We see that he is conceived by the Holy Spirit, which means he's in the lineage of God. Not only does he have a human lineage, he has a holy, godly lineage as well. And when we put these things together, we understand that it's not just, not really Joseph who actually gave the name Jesus. Who was it? It was God. God ultimately named Jesus. So at at the same time as Joseph is claiming Jesus legally, God is claiming Jesus. This is my son. Now, you're going to get to name him because you need to have that legal right as his father. So from everybody on the outside, they see that Joseph is is his father, and yet we see in the background that ultimately God is his father. This duality of nature of God and man at the same time is amazing, and it is so, so very important. It means that we have a Savior who is perfect. We have a Savior who is like us, is the correct sacrifice for us, can represent us, can feel as we do, can deal with emotions as we do, has to go through all of the dirtiness and the grittiness and the ups and downs of life as we do. We see in Hebrews, and if you're a part of a life group, one of the questions you're going to be going to is reading in Hebrews chapter 4. And it talks about how we have a Savior who is able, he's able to, to see things as we do. 
He's not so foreign. He's not so high in heaven and separated that he can't understand our situation. No, he is our high priest who is right there with us, who has lived it with us. There's a, there's a great comedian that I think he's still around doing some stuff, but Mark Lowry, love the guy. He's, uh, when I was a kid, we used to listen to his stuff all the time. If you don't know about him, look him up. Just hilarious. He's also part of the Gaither Vocal Band. But he, he talked, one of his bits was about how his favorite verse was, and it came to pass. And that's it. That's the whole verse. And the reason it's his favorite verse is because it's true. If you're, if you're having a really hard time, guess what? Hold on. God's with you. It'll pass. If things are going really well and really awesome and it's just you're living, living the high life right now, hold on because it'll pass. <laughs> it's both. And Jesus understands this. He feels it every single day, the ups and the downs, the fired from a job, the, my, I just had my first kid. As extreme as those two things feel, the, the loss of a family member all the way to a brand new opportunity and a chance to be reunited, all of these different things Jesus has felt, including the temptation. We know that Jesus was tempted as we are and yet did not sin. He is the perfect savior, which means he is able to save us. And I want you to know, well, Joseph is the one through whom this whole story is flowing right now. He's kind of the main character that's, that we're following along with. Jesus ultimately is the main person in these scriptures. He's the one that we are supposed to pay attention to ultimately. And while we can learn many lessons from what Joseph did, because he did them right over and over again, Jesus is the one that even saved Joseph. Jesus is the one who can save you, whether you're going through a high time right now or whether you're going through a low time. So ultimately, that is my goal today, is to have you hear me say, put your trust and your faith in Jesus. He is the only Savior who knows what you're going through and can save you from it. There is nobody else in this whole world who can do that. And it's thankfully not complicated. It's putting your faith in him, trusting him with your life, saying, This isn't mine anymore. All of who I am belongs to you. And now, God, I pray that you save me from myself and from my sin. That's it. And then from there, it's a life of following him, of following through what you said. But it's not the following through that makes you saved because Jesus gives this freely to everybody who would come to him. That's truly all it takes. Now, I do want to continue with our passage, and I want to wrap this up. I want to talk about lessons from Jonah, 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 Joseph. I am going to mention Jonah here in just a minute. Lessons from Joseph, okay? And just before we get into this, I do want to talk about how, by the way, Joseph sometimes gets ignored. Do you ever notice that? Mary gets a lot. Mary gets songs, right? You ever heard Ave Maria? It's in Latin. No idea what they're saying, but I know Maria's in there, and that's Latin for Mary. So it's about her. Also, Mary, did you know? Which, fun fact, you can take this home. And, and share it with others. Mark Lowry wrote that. A comedian wrote Mary, Did You Know? Believe it or not. Yeah, very serious song. Again, he was on the Gaither vocal band. So he's a good vocalist, but still kind of a fun fact. But yeah, Mary gets songs, right? She's in the Catholic Church. I think they go much too far with it to the point of almost worshiping her. But even without that, there's all these, these different things that we do to celebrate Mary. And as we should, Mary is a great representation of one who has followed what God has commanded. But so is Joseph. 
And I feel like sometimes we miss out on that. That Joseph did the right thing every step of the way. He was a righteous man. And so we look to what can we learn from him first? Be unwilling to do what is dishonorable. And this isn't always easy. Certainly, oftentimes it's not. We look to how he didn't wait for the moment of that intensity, the moment of the big decision to start doing the right thing. It's mentioned that he is already a righteous man. Because he's a righteous man, he did the right thing. Not he did the right thing and therefore he became a righteous man. Joseph already had in mind that he was going to do the right thing by Mary no matter what. I mean, that's why God chose him after all. And as much as God chose Mary, God chose Joseph as well. And so from this, we learn that Joseph was prepared for those hard times. Was he prepared for this? Probably not. Like, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think anybody would be prepared for their wife saying, hey, so I'm pregnant. It's not yours, but it's from God. Nobody's prepared for that. Not a single person on earth would be or ever has been. Joseph was not prepared for that. He didn't get in on the rest of the story of what was going on until after he heard about that. And then finally, God sent Gabriel to him. And yet he was going to do the right thing anyway. He was going to do the right thing by Mary before he ever heard from God. At least the right thing as far as he was able to figure out. What's the next right step? It's probably to divorce. Because in this circumstance, the way that it looks, this is the best thing for Mary. Along with that, we see that when God does intervene and say, no, here's the path that I want you on. That was a good intention, but here's what's actually going on. And here's the next step I want you to take. Joseph submitted to God. He didn't push back. I don't know if you know this, but Joseph didn't have to do that. We see that in Scripture many times. I, I subconsciously threw out Jonah in there. Jonah's a great example of that. God told Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach to them the repentance of their sins. What does Jonah do? He says, no, I'm going to go over here. I'm going to hop on a boat. I'm going to run as far away as I can. Just like Jonah, Joseph did not have to follow what God said. He could have disobeyed. Now, like Jonah, there, I'm sure there would have been some repercussions. It would not have gone well for Joseph, and God ultimately is going to accomplish his will no matter what, no matter what we try to do. But we do see that Joseph was not like that. He said, no, I'm going to submit to God and his will. He had no compromise Here's, here's a kind of an interesting thing, a way that I like to think about it. He's, he made himself a, a hard target for temptation. Now, when you go into defensive stuff, uh, which I did some cool defensive training not a couple years ago. It was really cool. But one of the things they teach you about is when you go into any circumstance, you need to make yourself a hard target for somebody who would want to do wrong to you or your family. What does that mean? That means being aware. That means uh, taking basic necessary precautions not being oblivious, not putting yourself in more danger than you need to be. I mean, you and I all do that regularly anyway. When you go home at night, you lock the doors, right? You're making yourself a harder target for somebody who would want to enter into that house and destroy it and destroy your family. Likewise, against sin, we need to present a hard target. Be prepared. Have lines that never get crossed. Have things that you are unwilling to compromise on and never will, no matter how ridiculous they may look to the outside world. I remember a few years back when he was talking about uh, what was it, Mike Pence who said, you know what, I never, never go in a room with another woman other than my wife by myself because I just have a standard. And it, he was ridiculed for that. Oh, how insecure must this man be? How unnecessary. Man, how, how little of a man must he be to not even be able to resist temptation? No, 
That is resisting temptation. The reality is, he said, I don't even want to get close to temptation. I don't even want to present the air of, of sinfulness in this situation. I'm not even going to touch it. Not even close to it. That's true self-control. And that's harder because it means setting boundaries that others are going to think are ridiculous. Joseph did that. He said, I'm not going to compromise when it comes to these things. The next thing, take real steps to follow after God, to trust in God. Verse 24 says this, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He, he didn't mull it over. He didn't think, well, I mean, is this a good idea? Is it a bad idea? I mean, can I follow God and yet still kind of do what I want to do over here? He's like, no, no, no. I'm just going to do what God said. Again, submission to God. God says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Put God to the test. And I don't mean test him as in say, okay, God, prove it to me and then I follow you. No. Start following him and let God fulfill what he said he was going to do. Trust him. He's not going to let you down. And the third and final thing here is do the next right thing. We see again in our passage right here, when Joseph woke up, did you catch that? Not the next week, not the next month, not when he got his business in order and whatever. No, when he woke up, like boom, he wakes up, head off the bed. All right, here we go. Let's do this. Mary, we're getting together. All right, I'm taking you home. Right then and there, he was ready to go. Do the next right thing. Oftentimes we think we hear, hey, don't sweat the small stuff. No, 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 no. That's wrong. Don't sweat the big stuff, okay? God's, first off, you have no control over the big stuff ultimately anyway. You really don't. It may seem like you do. You don't. God does. You do, though. God allows you to have a certain amount of control over the small stuff. Your reaction your interactions with others. You have control over those. God has allowed you that. And like the parable of the talents where we see that God entrusts certain people with a small amount, a medium amount, maybe a larger amount, ultimately not a lot compared to God himself, but a certain amount. And how we respond with it is going to reflect how God responds to us, how much more he will entrust us with. So if we are responsible with the small things, God will entrust us with more. He knows then that, that we have proved ourselves to handle those larger things. Not only have we proved ourselves, but we've learned in the midst of that too, which is why he gives us those things. So work on the small things. And I mean, like right now. Not, not, not in a minute, not, not when you start to leave, not later today. I mean, right now, what are the things that God is instructing you to follow him in? What are the things that God has put on your heart this morning as you walked in and you saw that person like, ah, oh, man, I should talk to them. Do it. Don't wait. Why are, you, why are you fretting over it? Don't sweat that. Sweat whether or not you're actually following God or not. When you walk out of here and you get your hot cocoa, which please get some hot cocoa. It's fantastic. There's all kinds of toppings and whatnot. But when you're over there and you see that new person, you're like, you know, I should, I should say hi. Go do it. Don't think I should. Just do it. Because God is instructing you in that. He is leading you in that moment. As you drive home and the roads are icy and somebody slips over in your lane and cuts you off, are you going to follow him in that next right step? When you get home later this evening and you're with your family, are you going to take the next right step? Tomorrow at work, are you going to take the next right step? The rest of this week, moment by moment by moment, that's what we are entrusted with. We have no more moments than the ones that we are in at this moment right now. So use that one appropriately for God. That is what we learned from Joseph here. If you hear nothing else, and, and here's a great quote from somebody that, that, I don't know if you guys know him or not, Scott Paulson, he's not really well known, but anyway, um, we have our, like, our teaching team that we get together with, and so know that 
anytime you hear these, these scriptures and you hear the, these messages from up here, it's really not even, while it's supposed, we hope that it is the Holy Spirit speaking through us, ultimately it's not even one person that the God is speaking through either because we get together as a team and we kind of reflect on these things and, and push back and try to learn from the scriptures together. And we, we try to build together these these passages and these, these messages that we're presenting to you. And so while we were speaking two weeks ago, Scott Paulson just had a fantastic quote, and I, I had to type it down on my computer right then and there, and here's what he said. He said, we're not looking for spiritual superheroes, just people who are willing to do the next right thing as they trust God with their lives. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, help us not to be overwhelmed by the world around us, even by our own lives and the busyness and the responsibilities that we feel are so important. Lord, I pray that you will help us to see the next right thing that we are supposed to do. Guide us through your Holy Spirit. Show us like you showed Joseph. Give us clear and plain instruction. But God, we do want to trust you. We do know that you don't always tell us two steps ahead even, just the next one. So I pray that we will be faithful in that that you will be able to trust us with even more. Lord, I pray that we will follow after you in every single moment, especially as we look ahead to Christmas and what you did for us and your faithfulness. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.